Throughout the proverbial voyage of excavating her journals dating to 1983 and reliving her memories and experience through an older and perhaps wiser set of eyes, she was struck by the shadows of behavioral patterns, of action born of the pain and loneliness her younger self faced. She was lost. She thought she was powerless in her own life, feeling unnoticed and forgotten left behind as her parents focused on their own lives. She had so much trouble moving on and dealing with her emptiness and needlessly went on so many dates looking for boyfriends, looking for love, looking for connection and a feeling of closeness. Today's story is of transformation is of a not so ordinary woman from Long Island who faced her own dragons with courage and tenacity and in doing so became her own hero. She used the tools that she bore deep in her psyche and combined them with intellectual discoveries, faithful advice, and an extraordinary gift of hope to create a happy and healthy life. And yet, her story is universal. How has she overcome all this adversity and transformed into the person she always meant to be? All she had to do was give herself permission to land in a place that occurred not by default, but by design. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. Our guest today is Marcy Brockman, artist, podcaster, educator, and author of a phenomenal book called Permission to Land, Searching for Love, Home, and Belonging. Our show today is sponsored by Climber, C-L-M-B-R, the most efficient full-body cardio and strength fitness machine available with instructor-led on-demand climbing and fitness classes. To learn more about Climber, CLMBR, and purchase one for your home at a 20% discount and save up to 500 bucks, click get.climber.com. That's get.clmbr.com and input put the code CHUCK20. That's getclimber.com for 20% off. Marcy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chuck. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's great to have you here. Marcy, I have read a lot of books, and I've even authored one myself. When I read your book, and I closed it, it was one of, if perhaps not the most, honest, vulnerable, and compelling memoirs I've ever read. Wow. It was That's awesome. amazing. Well, thank you for writing it, but here's the big question. Yeah. Why, why did you write it, and who did you write it for? I wrote the book for myself. I wrote it for my own catharsis and my own closure as I tried to make sense out of my mother's death and all the loose ends that I still had open. Um, and then partway through the first draft while talking with some old friends about getting memories and getting stories correctly and, you know, doing my research and just chatting up people I knew about what I was writing, I realized that the story that I was writing was universal, that the particulars, the details of the experiences were uniquely mine because it was my life, but the feelings behind them, the motivations behind the, behind my own behavior is universal. And I began to see this as something that not just could help me figure out my stuff and along my, my healing journey, 
but able to help so many other people who were raised by mentally ill parents um, who were raised by or love people who have addiction and and what that does to a kid to a teen to a young adult to an older adult what what that does to us when we love people who can't give us the things that we need and who give us by default by by the sheer lack of their ability to love us the way we need who give us a toxic template for how to build relationships with others and ourselves and that was my goal interestingly as you were journaling through the course of time now I'll note to our audience Marcy is an English teacher and it's obvious because the book is written as if someone who has a tremendous command of the language not just wrote a bunch of words but wrote it in a really coherent and powerful style as Thank you. you you're welcome it was great as you were journaling did you envision that you were going to create a synthesis of this for publication or did you were you doing it for your own edif self edification so definitely self edification i was i was a biologically an only child from my parents original marriage and they fought and argued and were miserable my entire life and by and large they thought i was totally unaffected by it um, but I have very early memories of myself sitting in waiting rooms of uh, lots of doctors. And it turns out, you know, later on, I found out that they were marriage counselors and I had no one to turn to. You know, my mom was just um, an undiagnosed bipolar and always tried to medicate that incorrectly herself. And she didn't do it with alcohol, but she did it with prescription drugs. And my dad, my mom never worked. So my dad was always working like 90 jobs to obviously a little hyperbolic, but was always working a lot of jobs. And so wasn't around a whole heck of a lot. And then when he was around, they didn't get along. Um, so I turned to journaling. Uh, I, I somehow in a very Jane Austen-esque idea in my head, thought that journaling was going to be like romanticized in some way, you know, the young girl all alone writes in her diary, you know, like, but I very soon figured out that I could pour my whole entire heart and soul onto the page and reveal things that I would not have the chutzpah to tell anybody else. And well, there was no repercussion, you know, I could say anything. Well, I'm glad you said that because when I started reading the book to our listeners, there's, there is a sequential element here, and it starts logically in a place as a child describing the trials and tribulations of being at home with mom and dad. But what I found interesting, you were immediately right from the start. You created a level of vulnerability and a transparency that I really rarely see in a memoir from the early age. Did you feel you needed to get that out fast so the reader could understand the honesty and the truth you were bringing from the origin? Yeah, I mean, I start the book with my mother's, with my mother's death, um, because that really was the, the, the motivating force behind writing the book in the first place. Right, that's the introduction. But that's the introduction, and then back. I went back to my childhood because you know, in order to understand. The, the crisis that I was feeling in 2013 when she died and how to come up with what to say for her eulogy because nobody else wanted to eulogize her right. and how I felt 
making the decision to cut her out of my life in order to save my kids. I think that the reader as well as myself needed to go back to my childhood to unravel the big ball of knots that that it was to make sense out of it. Well, where if if I'm feeling this angsty and this torn and this guilty as a mid 40 year old woman with young kids telling my mother that she could no longer be a part of our life because she was toxic. How how why did I feel that way? You know, like it's very easy to think, well, okay, so your mother treated you in a way that made you feel victimized and she was toxic and she was now starting to attack your children and she's an opiate addict. So write her off and close the door and that's it. You're done. But it's not that way with your parents. It's you, it's you, you can't just very coldly and objectively close a door without feeling all of those feelings, you know, and and I needed to go back to my childhood to sort of unravel it. But I wanted to make sure that I was using my journals as primary source documents and not victimize myself. Like all these people were awful and I was an angel. I, I didn't want to give myself a pass. I wanted to be just as tough and just as analytical with my own behavior as I was with everyone else's. Um, and, and I think that I was able to do that. I mean, there were things that I did that added to the drama rather than subtracting from the drama. And I had to own that too. But what I wanted to figure out was why was I doing those things? I went through a lot of boyfriends and, and I was looking for things external to myself that I had to figure out how to give myself from internally. You know, like I wanted to find my happiness through other people or through service to others or pleasing other people. But I I almost, I was looking for permission. I keep going back to that, which is why it's the title for everything. I wanted to give myself permission to be happy, permission to try things that I wanted to try, permission to, to feel peace and to allow myself to be loved. And I couldn't get that from anyone else because it wasn't anyone else's responsibility or to give it to me and nobody else was able to give it to me. And and what I want to share with everybody is what I learned through this process is that the only person on this planet who you can change, the only person on this planet that you are responsible for, the only one that you can truly make happy, whose dreams you can fulfill is yourself. You can encourage that in others, but the only one who you can really do it for is yourself. And so you ultimately have to give yourself permission to begin, to begin all of it, to begin a healing journey, to begin excavation of your own heart, to begin to learn how to trust your inner knowing, your your authentic self in order to set healthy boundaries and to put yourself on a happy, on on a healing path toward making your life everything that you've ever wanted it to be. I want to take it back to another place, to a very relatable, not necessarily one episode, but as children, we see a dynamic between mom and dad, and we don't know whether it's good or bad because we don't have anything to compare it to. It's right. It's just our normal. It's just it's what you know. Right. And it's not something that you sit around with your elementary school friends talking about, hey, what's the dynamic between mom and dad? No. Take us back to that 
when you begin to make sense that something's not right, either between them or how it affects you. And tell us what it felt like to come to this realization. Wow, mom and dad, I thought parents are supposed to be perfect. They're not. How did that come to you? It wasn't a big aha moment. It was a lot of lots and lots and lots of little bitty things. Um, when I was super small, my parents shared the same master bedroom, but they went to bed at different times. And my dad was a light sleeper and my mom was an insomniac. So there was always fights about the lights being on and the TV being on. And it wasn't peaceful. You know, they used to argue all the time. My mom just once dumped an entire glass of ice water over my dad's head out of frustration. And I was like, gee, that doesn't seem so nice. Um, and then not too long I, I would say by the time I was in third grade or so, maybe around there, they were in separate bedrooms and my dad decamped to the guest room. And, and I would go to one room to say goodnight to my dad and I'd go to another room to say goodnight to my mom. And it was very sort of rare that my parents would come in and tuck me in. You know, I kind of like put myself to bed. And, but and in did, a lot- did, did that seem that was your normal? That was my normal. But then I started like doing sleepovers at friends' houses mm -hmm. and their parents slept in the same room and they didn't fight over things. And nobody that I ever saw dumped a glass of water over the other one's head. And and the parents always came in and tucked us both into beds or sleeping bags or whatever it was when I was sleeping at friends' houses. And it just, you know, or I'd go to my aunt and uncle's house or I'd go to my grandparents, you know, there were other couples that I could start to measure them against. And then it was just sort of like a, the feeling I always had of unease because they fought more often than they'd speak. You know, my mom would cook when company came, but not when company wasn't there, we'd bring in food or my dad would bring home food on the way. And we didn't eat together as a family very often. And when we did, it was in front of the TV and nobody talked. You know, they, they had no, they, they weren't friends. They had nothing in common. Um, they fought all the time. And I, I would hide in the closet in my room. I had a, a double door sliding closet and I used to take a teddy bear and a pillow and I'd move some boxes out of the way and I'd hide in the closet and close the door. I and my parents I, never knew. I just wanted as far away from that as I could get. I, and I appreciate that. And I think all of us that go and we would reflect on our our parent-child relationship, sometimes we can't make sense of it. However, what I did see, particularly in you and what I know about all of us, is it begins to shape your personality in a certain way. Oh, so, yeah. in, so in your case, you were shaping, but there was an episode in high school, and as I read it, it really hit me. And you described yourself as a shy individual, and you were trying to figure out to navigate this whole high school social thing. And you said to yourself, right at that moment, I decided not to be shy anymore. And it changed your mindset and it changed the direction yeah. for better or for worse. It started to shape a different you, even though you couldn't, couldn't um, predict what that future would be. Why did you come to that conclusion? And for our listeners who may be in a similar situation where they are shy, how does one make up their mind not to be? And how do you behave in such a way that is contrary to all those years that got you there? Well, you know, I had felt I had because my mother was so unpredictable and could either be Cruella DeVille or Snow White, right. um, I was a people pleaser and sublimated is the word I use, but sort of pushed down all the things that I wanted and became sort of afraid of my own feelings because 
I, I was afraid to let them out because they might ex make my mother explode. And so I think that that sort of conditioned me to be more mousy and quiet. But then I was having a conversation with my mother when she was in one of her good moods. And she was talking about how shy she was, how shy she still is, that she can't, even in PTA meetings, she can't raise her hand and say what she wants to say because she's afraid of what that's gonna be like. She can't go out to dinner with my dad for work dinners because she's too afraid to talk to the other wives because they might think less of her or something. So she refused to put herself in this situation. And there were a bunch of other examples that she gave me from her school life. And I, I wrote about it in my journal. And I'm like, I don't want that for myself. And if I'm too shy to, to make friends, and I'm too shy to talk to people and assert myself, and do the things that I secretly want to do, then I'm going to grow up to be like that. And I don't want to do that. You know, I don't, I, I'm an extrovert, really. And I was shoving myself in an introvert, shy sort of behavior. And I kept like bouncing into the walls of that box I had shoved myself in, right. if you'll follow me with that metaphor. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I wrote in my journal, like, all right, so what would that look like if I decided that I wasn't going to be shy anymore? What would that look like? It would be um, joining in with the other kids when they're talking or they're fooling around or volunteering in class a little more often. Um, all of like there are plenty of times where I would think of a response or I would think of what I wanted to say to add to the conversation, but I wouldn't let myself. Right. You and didn't so give I, yourself permission. I didn't give myself permission to do that. And, and I decided. What, what, what was holding you back? Why not? I was afraid. I was afraid. Yeah. Freer. Absolutely. I was afraid that they'd laugh at me. I was afraid that it wouldn't be um, accepted, that it would cause people to not want to be friends with me and have the exact opposite reaction than what I wanted, you know, like that would be worse than not saying anything at all. Because at least if I didn't say anything, I could tag along and be the silent shadow. But if they didn't like what I had to say, then maybe they wouldn't even let me tag along kind of thing. But then, you know, I realized that I wasn't really being accepted for me if I wasn't saying anything. If I was just quiet and a shadow, then I was just a quiet shadow. I wasn't actually Marcy. And, and so I, I came to realize, okay, so if I'm standing with a group of kids and they're all talking and joking around and I have something to say and I say it, if it goes great and they think it's funny or they like it, that's great. But if they don't, at least I know I said it and I tried because what's the worst that thing is going to happen? They're laugh or they'll just not say anything or they'll ignore it. The earth is not going to open up and swallow me whole. I'll still be able to draw breath into my lungs. Everything will still be fine. And so I remember I was doing publicity for the drama of my freshman year of high school. And we were all sort of standing around in the hallway, like taping up flyers and whatever, what have you. And I do not know what we were talking about or joking about, but suddenly I just had this punchline in my head, whatever it was. And I just let it rip. And everyone was hysterical laughing. They're like, oh, Marcy, you're so funny. And, and I don't remember the content of that, but I remember the euphoria of how that felt, that I had let myself out and it was fine and it worked and everybody was totally cool with it. And no one said, oh, gee, you never talk. What, how are you so funny? And like, there was no judgment, no negative reaction. So that kind of buoyed my 
my bravery for the next time. And then that went well. And then that made the next time better. And so by the time we got to the spring musical, I was audacious enough to audition. And here I was now singing and dancing in front of teachers where before I wasn't even talking. And I guess, and I got into the show. So, you know, I didn't get a major role, but I was a freshman and I got into the chorus and that was more than enough for me. And it just sort of buoyed me so that by the time a couple of years went by and then I admitted to friends that I used to be shy when I was a kid, they thought I was a liar. They was like, no way, Marcy would never have been shy. You're kidding me. Well, I marked that as I read that and I looked at the sequence and I marked that as, you know, the, the radio host in me, I'm looking for the, the, the transitions for the points sure. that the inflection points. And as I right, first point of transformation, however, as I continue to re read the book, it was fascinating the amount of honesty and candor you put in in your relationship toward your boyfriends and toward the men in your life, but particularly you were the subject of betrayal. And yeah. you talked about one particular in, in your time at New Paltz where you were getting home at a particular time and your boyfriend had preceded you by an hour, uh, an hour before while he was sleeping with someone else. In my and bed, you yeah. said, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you came home an hour early. Oh, I guess, hey. <laughs> oh, that oh, wasn't the answer sorry. to the question. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and so you described that and then into your adult life, you described a couple other episodes that brought absolutely almost tears to my eyes. Oh my God, I can't believe this. How did you find the courage to describe those episodes in a world where people say, you're sharing that? I'm glad you did because it made for wonderful reading and it helped me to understand you. But most of the people I know would never reveal that. Thank you. I actually for like that. to tell those stories. I wonder. I really help, like help to tell those stories. So many people that we know in our lives, you know, there's something they want to say and they don't say it. Mm -hmm. Help them to understand how you are okay with this and why perhaps they may be? Well, look, we're, we're all fundamentally fueled by the same need for love and companionship and connection. We're humans. We're wired for that. We can't live without it. Okay. And I think that because of the, the lack of acceptance and love I felt as a kid, I I went into romantic relationships looking to make up for the deficits my parents left behind. Right. And so that was really the chief motivator initially and made me allowed me to settle for less than I deserved. And even when things seemed slightly off or the, the hair on the back of my neck would stand up because that something just wasn't right, I didn't trust myself enough or trust the situations enough to be able to say, all right, forget it. I'm done with you. You're not treating me in a way that I am willing to accept. I'm going to go find somebody else. I, I didn't feel empowered to do that. Partly also because I wasn't the one or two dates move on to somebody else kind of girl. I was a serial monogamist. So I got long-term relationships. I got to know people's families. And because there was so much lacking in my own families, my own family, I, I attached myself to my boyfriend's families. And I loved that aspect of our relationship so much that I never wanted to relinquish even what I knew wasn't going well. Well, you weren't just searching for a boyfriend, you were searching for stability in a family. And what you described in many cases, right. were, wow, I really like this family. I mean, I like you as much, but man, your family's pretty good. Right. There, was, there, there were other transitions that occurred. And I think the right. biggest, the, 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 yeah, go ahead. 
Now you you asked me why I tell the stories, but I I I think that that because everybody has this universal quest for love and we're in a society now where most of the time or a good significant portion of the time people are meeting through online dating yeah. that that we need help nobody teaches us interpersonal relationship skills right. nobody teaches us how to weed through all of the rotten apples to find the beautiful apple that we want to build our orchard with terrible metaphor sorry um I just tried. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. I get it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I like the stories because everybody can relate to them. Right. You know, um, all of the nightmarish. And I conflated a whole lot of men together because I could go on and on and on and on and on. And the page with the book would have been 50 pages longer if I told you everything. But but I, I like the stories, you know, like who's going to understand how a woman feels when she's betrayed by her boyfriend of two and a half years, unless she describes every last nook and cranny of the situation. Right. And then and then the confidence in myself that grew out of being able to say, hell no, this isn't happening anymore. And literally throwing his stuff out the second story window into the gravel driveway, you know, like, it was like a movie scene. When I think back on it, it looks like a movie scene. But from each one of these betrayals, from these disappointments, yeah, my heart got trashed, but my confidence in myself grew. Right. I realized in retrospect, yes, you should have trusted yourself because all of those little inklings about how toxic or how bad or how just not right this was were true. You that, and each time, instead of making me feel bad about myself that I didn't follow through, then it made me feel really good about myself for following through now. Well, that came through on the book because as I read the different transitions, I was beginning to feel that with each of those, this was a layer that that, that I was putting back together. Right, I was healing exactly. a wound. I was stitching. solving a problem. I was stitching right. the quilt of myself right. back together. But there's something else, and this is a big transition for better or for worse, whatever the result was, as dating, dating, particularly college, as we're growing up and we discover our sexuality, we get out of college, what typically happens statistically a couple of years later, marriage comes, a couple of years later, children comes. Right. You, you headed into a marriage. And, and there were, as I read the book and you were describing, oh, is this the right one? Well, is it right or wrong? Like I could just feel the trepidation. Well, this is the right time. There's no reason for the timing. Is this the right guy? And, and yet in, in the back of your mind, it's as if everything led you to this point, because as creatures, as, as humans, everything leads us to the wedding, because in a woman's right. life and taken away from men, this is the milestone. This marks the turning point into adulthood. Describe to our, our listeners, if you would, please, what, what was working in your mind and in your heart as you were heading into what you said was going to be yes to the marriage and you went into the marriage. However, describe how you were feeling as you headed into this and what was the dynamic of your marriage. Okay. So um, Sam and I met I was 24, he was 23, and this was a new situation for both of us because we had a better time together and more of a connection than either of us had ever had in any other previous relationship. Um, I had, from the beginning, I adored his parents and his parents and my parents adored him. 
uh, especially my mom, which should have been my first clue. Okay, fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I knew that there were certain things that weren't right. Like I got along. I, I I was really at the point that I met him was looking to completely revolutionize my life. The people who I was hanging out with were hanging out in bars and drinking all the time. And they were going down a path I didn't want to go. I wanted, I was ready to grow up. I was ready to adult. I was in graduate school and I was, I was looking to put my life together and, and build something meaningful. And so I changed my whole friend group. I changed everything. And Sam had a wonderful group of friends. And so I got to add him and a whole supportive, wonderful friend group of, of men and women and a whole bunch of couples. And they were loving and warm and zany. And just, we had such a wonderful time together. And then our parents became friends. Even before we got engaged, my mother and, and my stepdad and Sam's parents became friends and hung out without us. You know, they were off doing their own thing. And, uh, and we just kept going. And there was, there was a whole lot of my relationship with him that felt familiar and felt like home. And while we had some fun together socially, when we were alone, there wasn't anything. Like we could watch TV, we could go to the movies, but there was no intimate conversation. There was no physical intimacy. There was nothing. And at one point we were like parallel playing in our living room because we had moved in together and we had, we were parallel playing in living room, like three-year-olds. Like he was at the dining room table doing something and I was in the living room doing something. And he's like, you know, being with you is so comfortable. It's like being alone. And at first I thought, well, gee, that's really wonderful. And later in retrospect, I was like, well, that's just insulting. It shouldn't be like being alone because that just means you're completely ignoring me and discounting me. And, and I, I knew that there were things wrong with the relationship that couldn't be fixed. And I tried to do the couples counseling thing with him and he refused to go with me. Mm-hmm. And when I went by myself, the therapist, you know, therapists and talk therapy, they don't ever really tell you what's wrong. They just ask you, so Chuck, what do you think about that? Yeah, Let's unpack that a little bit. That? Tell me you have, what do you think? <laughs> this guy said, all right, I'm breaking every role. I'm breaking every piece of protocol. You need to go home pack your belongings and move back in with a parent until you can move out on your own. You need out of this relationship. This is not good for you. And I went, you're probably right, but I'm not willing to give up my home because it was the first time I had my own place to live where I called the shots, where it almost everything was totally up to me because I was handling everything. I was doing all of the adulting. He was working, but I paid the bills and I cooked and I cleaned and I, it was, it was me. That house would not have been a home without me. And, um, and I was unwilling to give that up. And my mother had always said that any adult relationship, any marriage is full of compromise. And so I'm like, so this is my compromise. We'll eventually learn the other stuff because he kept telling me, I totally get what you're saying. I want the same exact things out of life you do. I want us to be closer. I want there to be more intimacy. I want what you want. And and I kept believing him and he'd be really great. And we'd get things back on track for a few weeks and then it would all peter out again. And then I would sublimate all my needs and just focus on the things that I needed to do, finishing graduate school and working. And I got my first teaching job and, and I... 
I just did my life. And then I would get tired of pushing all of my needs down and it would bubble up again because it always does. You can only hide the things that you want or hide your problems or your or the, the disappointments in the corner under the laundry in the bedroom only so long before it comes out in some other way. And then it would come out and we would have it out again and it would be an argument and it'd be crying and you know all this stuff, this angst and all of this drama. And then he would apologize and he would say, I'm really sorry, I do want what you want. And he'd get me again and suck me back in. And this happened for years. And then eventually I just realized that if I was alone and celibate for the rest of my life, it would be better than spending one more day as his wife. Well, here comes another transformation because in the high school, you made up your mind. I'm not going to be shy anymore. You fell into the behavioral patterns and you made up your mind. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to sublimate myself to this marriage because I've given so much. Another transition was occurring here, but you had children and you moved on and ultimately you and Sam split up. It described then as you were raising your children, what was in your mind as it related to the experience you had learned from your parents and the kind of mother you wanted to be to your children? Good question. I'm glad you said that. I, I The night I decided that I wanted to divorce Sam, I came up with a parallel conclusion that not only did I not want to be in this marriage for me, but that he didn't want my children to grow up that thinking that this is what a marriage, this is what a relationship looked like, right. that this right. is what they should accept for themselves or how they should treat somebody else. And so when I realized that I didn't want this marriage for my children, I also realized that I needed to get out of it so that they wouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. So we divorced pretty painlessly, you know, some dramatic moments, but less than a year mediation and it was over. And then we shared joint uh, custody of the kids and we stayed in the same town where we lived. So nothing for them had to change, but I raised them with a level of inclusion and respect and non-judgment and kindness that allowed them to become emotionally literate and to trust themselves and to be able to, um, to feel a sense of agency in their own lives from the very beginning. So if one of the kids came home with a problem with a friend or a colleague, a colleague, a friend or a classmate or a coach or something, um, we would talk about it. Okay, so what happened? How did you feel? Um, what do you think we could do about it? How do you, what do you think, what, what do you want to change? And we'd problem solve the whole thing and make a list of responses. Like, well, do you think that you should talk to your teacher? Okay. So you're going to talk to your teacher. What are you going to say? And initially they were like, well, well, no, you're going to say it mom. And I'm like, no, I don't have a relationship with your teacher. I'm not the one with the problem. You're the one with the, with the problem with what's going on. Let's, let's problem solve. Let's come up with the dialogue so that you can respectfully talk to the teacher and see how it goes. And if you get a good response, then it's great. And if you need me at some point to be the safety net and, and then come in after, then I'll come in after I'm the, I'm the cleanup and the mop up at the begin at the end. I'm not the, you know, and, and so with a little uh, caution and a whole lot of courage and they each in their own way did that. And 
you know, even if they had to come back and forth, okay, so the teacher said this, and uh, this is what I said, but I still don't think it's solved yet. What do I say now? And then I'd say, okay, so now we're going to do this, this, or this. And, and he would go back and he'd say, you know, what, whatever, and follow through with what we had discussed. And it solved on its own. And they learned agency. They learned to trust themselves. They learned to speak up for themselves. They learned that they were valuable and that they deserved to be seen. And, and it made them a thousand percent healthier and better than I ever was because I never had any of that. And I didn't ever set them up for a disaster by making them be my confidant or making them take care of me. I allowed them to be the kids and I was the parent, you know? And yet, and yet as I was reading the book, while I was looking at the dynamic, or at least regarding the dynamic between you and your children, yeah. what hit me was you're bringing the gift to your children that your mother either didn't or either wasn't willing or able, perhaps able, because you described her own mental illness, which came in a lot of forms. But the next transition, as I saw this, is you are giving your children, irrespective of what happened to where Sam was in your life, you're giving them the gift that you never had. Once you began to change and you began to figure out and model, what do I want for my children? This right. was a very different thing than the experience you brought. Mm -hmm. and, and I love that part of the book because you were bringing the dynamic to your children. You were inventing it because you were never on the receiving end of it yourself. Right. And, and I, I, I found that while there were so many wonderful parts of the book and there were so many episodes that I really enjoyed reading, I think as a parent myself, I wondered, wow, this is really cool because you're taken as the teacher in you. You have learned your lessons and you are teaching your children to ensure that they are insulated from the the tension and the strain that you had as a child. And I really enjoyed that. I wanted them to be resilient. Right. I wanted them to be frustration tolerant. You Yet know? they had a place to turn. You didn't. Yeah. You, you didn't have that. And, and they grew up knowing that they had someone who loved that, unfortunately, not bipolar, weren't dealing with, with a mental disorder. And I've been in years. therapy for the entire time that I've been an adult. Right. So I always had a therapist to bounce ideas off of. Okay, right. so my daughter came up to me with this problem and this is how I handled it. Did I do it right? And I had a therapist to talk through how I was handling my 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 motherhood, you know? And I, I've always been a reader and very much into psychology. So I've always been... I've always been curious about things like that. And I brought all of that, plus my teaching... Um, education, you know, like the whole concept of running a constructivist classroom really helped me build the kind of home that I wanted to build, right. where all of us were included. And I didn't hide things from them in an age appropriate way. I included their opinions in decision making on how to run the house, you know, and so they always felt part of it. And you know, I still had to nag them about doing chores and so on, but it was never a question of, okay, why the garbage needed to go out or why the dishes or, you know, why are you saying no? You know, I would explain, no, you can't do X, Y, and Z because I'm not just being punitive or arbitrary. There's a reason. And, and because I was including them in all of the, the thought process, I, I taught them things that I never learned until I had taught them myself, you know, and I still have them 
they're both going to be 20 and 23 this March. And, you know, my daughter has me in her phone as her best friend and she doesn't make a decision without, well, I don't want to say like without consulting me because then it seems codependent, but she does run things by me. So what do you think? This is what I did. Is this, you do think this is cool. And when she's making a decision, she talks out her process with me still. And so does my son in his way. You know, I mean, he's a, almost a 23-year-old man and we have very candid conversations about relationships and interpersonal conflict and, and how to handle things in a kind way without giving up too much of our own personal self, finding the balance, which is the most beautiful thing I, I could have ever imagined, you know? It, it, is, it is the greatest gift a parent can give to their children are the lessons that you learn that you have internalized and you have helped to teach them to step up into the world and, and to step to up- To be in a, their own the best person they know how to be, yeah. I, I, I want to finish here, Marcy, and I want to switch into what was the most joyful part of the book. While I enjoyed reading all of it and it was relatable and there was a lot of good advice, there were two things that happened here in the next series of your transitions that I really, really, I just wanted to bear hug the book for it. You found, <laughs> you, you found love and you yeah. found an outlet in your art that perhaps yeah. was unexpected, but my God, it did it come pouring out. Yeah. Were they, so describe all the lessons that you've learned, the divorce with Sam, but you're keeping your kids all together and you're doing the best you can. Love comes the second time and art comes not for the first time, but what you're doing with your art was different. Describe what was happening at this point where you are now becoming the person you're meant to be. You've given yourself permission to be happy. You're giving yourself permission to be creative. And now I see you, I meet you, you are just beaming. You are just oozing with love and kindness and generosity. Walk us through the parallel transition of love and art. And in particular, there is one point I want to get through in this show, and it was modeling something Kate Winslet said in, uh, right, in, the, in the holiday. In the holiday where she became the, let, let's use the metaphor, you become the star of your own show. Right. Um, and there's a couple different ways to wordsmith, but now, Marcy, at this point, you have become the, the leading, leading lady, leading in lady your of my own, own show. Life. I was no longer casting myself as the best friend. That's yeah. Correct. Now you're yeah. the leading lady. You have love in art. Walk us through there, and then I want to talk to the audience with one last thing. Okay, so um, at some point after my mom died, I was drawing and writing in my journal and doing a whole lot of crying and a lot of writing. I started writing for Elephant Journal. And um, and then somehow I just felt like painting again. I hadn't painted since college. And so I bought myself a drafting table and then I wound up buying my daughter one. And um, I set it up in, a in, an, in an empty bedroom in my house. And I just, you know, it was just playing with some paint just to sort of see what happened. And it became sort of a, a meditative hobby. You know, I started to piece together a whole lot of things that I wasn't really conscious that I was thinking about. You know, it gave me um, a, a fluid, creative, like transcendent kind of thing to work on that was not text-based for a change the way the writing is. But I was thinking 
And I was learning patience and I was learning to trust myself and my instincts as an artist, like composition and color and, and so on. And then at the same time, I was going through a bunch of online dating services and I was dating a bunch of guys and like weeding through, weeding through, let's just- I got you. That. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I started to realize that I was too good to settle. And that it didn't feel good to settle and that um, I needed to make a list of like way back in my 20s, my stepmom had asked me to make a list of all of the characteristics I wanted in a man. And at this point, I decided that, you know, being in my early mid 40s, it was damn time I refurbished that list. And because my priorities changed, things changed. I wasn't the same person I was back then. So I recreated a list. And then from that list, I went forth. Um, and. I was just painting and I discovered that I liked big canvases and I discovered that I like abstract and I like, I like uh, landscapes and especially beaches and sunsets and sunrises and things that made me feel hopeful and made me feel um, elated. Like I was hovering over the earth rather than being on it and um, in a good way. And, uh, and then a friend of mine came over and he's like, let me see what you're painting. And he loved it so much that he commissioned me to paint a big, gigantic painting for the conference room in his office. And I was like blown away. I'm like, holy shit, this guy thinks I'm that good where he's going to pay me cash and he's going to hang it in his office. And then he agreed to hang like a dozen others of my paintings with little sale tags on them to sell to his big clients who would come into his office. Now you're in business. And so I was like, holy crap, I'm now Marcy Brockman artist. And so I started a website and I started selling art, not a huge Beautiful. amount, but I started selling art that way. I got myself in a little gallery in Northport, New York, right here on Long Island. And I was selling a couple of originals every now and then from there. And then I, I branched out into scarves. So now I make my paintings into scarves. I tried pillows, but the pillows didn't sell. I didn't really like the fabric that the supplier was using. So I stopped that. But the, the, the scarves are silky and wonderful and washable. And I love them. And they're made in the United States, which is even better. Um, and, and so it, I, I learned to trust the process of creating something. I learned that I was able to create something that other people appreciated. And at the same time, I was writing for Elephant Journal. And so my writing was getting published and it was getting a lot of responses from readers and so on. A few editor's picks here and there, which is super nice. And then I was reading an article in Elephant Journal in the middle of the night, the night before Thanksgiving of 2015 about soulmates. And basically whether you believe in soulmates or not is irrelevant because the article just listed a whole bunch of really wonderful characteristics in somebody you'd wanna build your life with. And I instantly, without any warning, thought of my friend, Michael, who I'd been friends with since 1987. And we'd never been romantically involved. There was a little flirtation in the late 80s before he got married and before I got married. And we each got married to separate people and had kids and had gotten divorced and were dating other people. And throughout it, we were friends through our whole friend group from, from SUNY New Paltz. Uh, I mean, Geneseo, because that's where I had started school. Started. And um, suddenly I just thought of Michael. And sometimes what you'll do at three in the morning is something that you would never do at noon. And so I messaged him through Facebook Messenger, the article, and I said, read this. And if you think this could be us, let me take you to dinner so we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. 
And I, and then I, I hit send and I was like, holy shit, what did I just do? I could have just ruined a friendship. If he doesn't feel that way, it's going to be awkward forever. You know, like, what did I do? Big risk. And, big risk. And I was like, well, you know, worst comes to worst. I eat some crow and he laughs and that's the end of that. And we'll probably be okay. Um, again, the earth's not going to swallow me up whole. So what the hell? That night, unbeknownst to me, he went to bed praying because he's a little more religious than I am, praying for a woman exactly like Marcy to come into his life. My goodness. And then he went to sleep. And when he woke up the next morning, my message was in his inbox. And he immediately called me and he said, never in my life has a prayer ever been answered so literally and so quickly. The universe operates in very strange ways, does it not? Very strange ways. So we talked on the phone in in very deep and intimate ways that we hadn't ever discussed that way before. Made a plan to go out because of our work schedules. It had to wait a few weeks because he was working nights and I was working days and holiday season and so on. And we slowly sort of put together a relationship and... By January 24th of 2016, we had declared in no uncertain terms that we loved each other. And this was a total commitment. And six months later, I proposed to him and he was crying his face off. And I had asked, told his kids ahead of time. And it was just wonderful. And uh, if you want the details of that, read the book. And um, <laughs> and I really did enjoy the details of that because <laughs> I was feeling so elated. And let, let, let's finish up with you were in this crotchety old canoe. And yeah. this was the life that you had before and now. And in the next sense, I'm noting the transition. You have given yourself permission to love. You have yeah. given yourself permission to express your art. You have written right. this wonderful, and I want to point it out, you have written this wonderful book to everybody watching us on YouTube called Permission to Land. I have mine what too. What I want to advise to everyone else is it comes with a companion, which is a notebook, which is the blueprint for as you learn from the takeaways from this wonderful book, you can now go from the passive reader who is definitely enveloped in the story to the active contributor to your own life as you give yourself permission to get the blueprints so that you may begin to think about and to craft what is the life like when you have set aside everyone else's expectations Mm -hmm. and given yourself permission and made up your mind that I am going to live my life, not the life by default, but by the life by By design. design. Indeed. And that's what I loved about it. So let me finish up with a few things. One, our show today has been sponsored by Climber, C-L-M-B-R. It's Climber without vowels, the most efficient full body cardio and strength fitness machine available with instructor-led on-demand climbing and fitness classes. You can go to the website, clmbr.com or If you're interested in purchasing the machine, go to get.climber, C-L-M-B-R, get.climber.com and input the code CHUCK20 for a 20% discount. But Marcy, I want to conclude now with you speaking to our listeners and what we ask so many on our show, given such this wonderful book that I wholeheartedly endorse. What do you want the people who are reading your book to do three things? What do you want them to think? What do you want them to feel? And what do you want them to do as they read your book? So let's start with think. Before we, let's get with the mind, then we'll get to the heart, and then we'll get to the act. 
as they are considering this, start with the first. Okay. So what I want you to start to think is that you are powerful, that you are capable, that you can trust that little voice inside you that has always been talking to you that you might not have been listening to. So I want you to get really quiet with yourself. Meditate, don't meditate, whatever. But get really quiet with yourself regularly, not just once. And I want you to listen. And I want you to write down what you think if you want to write it down. I'm a, uh, obviously a proponent of uh, a supporter of writing and of journaling. But to think about who you are and what you want and where you've been and how you might want to get there. Make yourself like a wish list of things that you want in your life. And then can I move on to feel? Indeed. Okay. So now when you start to think about those things, I want you to figure out how you're going to, how it would feel to have those things. That if you stop thinking about what your mom or your dad or your husband or your kids or the, the, your aunt or the lady next door who waters your cats or waters your, waters your plants, whatever, stop thinking about what anybody else wants from you or for you or about you and only your own self. What does that feel like to have all of that? You know, if you want to be an artist or you want to be a mountain climber or you want to fly an airplane or you want to be a teacher or you want to learn how to bowl a perfect 200 or, you know, is that the good score? I don't know. Uh, 300, but it's whatever, a- 300. It was a metaphor. <laughs> I, I was just going for it. Um, I want you to feel what that feels like or imagine what you think that would feel like. Like if you could clean out all of the problems and the, the old lingering doubts and drama that you've had that you've been ignoring all of those unanswered questions and start to heal yourself what would that feel like you know like i think so many of us push down uncertainty and fear and pain because we don't like the way it feels and the problem with that is that it doesn't go away and it doesn't get processed and we don't allow ourselves to feel what those things feel like and to allow the whole emotional process to conclude. Um, I, I have a tattoo on my arm that says the only way out is through from that Robert Frost poem, because the only way out of grief is to feel the grief. They're called feelings for a reason. You have to feel them. You can't put them away in a drawer because they're going to rattle around in that drawer until they make themselves known in some way or another. You have to feel all of those things and then feel how it, imagine how it might feel to heal all of those traumas. Like if you no longer had to carry around the burden, the heavy burden of that trauma from when you were a kid or a teenager or an earlier version of yourself, and you could walk forward into your life with a lightened load, what would that feel like? And then... I want you to figure out how to do it. And you know, if you start listening to yourself and you start healing some of these old things, you're going to know how to do it. I don't want you to like look at yourself and go, she's full of crap because there's no way I know. You know, I knew, you know what you want. And you make a list of the things that you want to do and then just go out and do them. You want to audition for a community theater play? Do it. You want to be a scoutmaster for your kid's Cub Scout team? I mean, it's Cub Scout group, do it. 
You want to go back to school. You want to climb a mountain. You want to go to Italy. Obviously, once the COVID pandemic is over, then go do it. You know, you want to run for office. We need people with good minds to, and big hearts to go run for office. Go do it. You know, I don't think that there's a limit to anything that we can do. I think that the limits that we feel are limits that are self-imposed. You know, I, I, I used to think that I wasn't in my life. I was above my life. And that's where the, the permission to land thing came. For a long time, I felt like I wasn't a part of my life because I wasn't allowing myself to make decisions and to behave in a way that was in alignment with my inner authenticity. And so I envisioned myself as an airplane, endlessly circling an airport, waiting for permission to land. And it wasn't until several years after that, that I realized that the only person, there, there is no relationship or behavioral um, flight controller, air traffic controller. The only person who can give you permission to land in your life with both feet on the ground is you. You only need your own permission to begin. And that is the perfect conclusion to all of our listeners. No matter where you are in your life, what Marcy, I hope, has inspired, has provoked, has thought about, challenge ourselves, it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to understand what's ahead of you. But the sooner that you give yourself permission to make mistakes, permission to fail, permission to love, permission to succeed. All of that comes, but you're the only one in control. Marcy, thank you so much for coming on to A Climb to the Top. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Indeed, I have. And it's been a real pleasure. Your book is phenomenal, lovely. Thank you. Honest, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Beautifully written. I could not put it down. And I don't think you need to be a husband or a father. I think it's relatable to anyone that has a mom and a dad, anyone that marries a man or a woman, anyone who does whatever it is we do to get through in our lives. I recommend, and let me hold it up again. I recommend permission to land and Marcy, where can everybody find you? Well, of course it is available anywhere online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's, any online bookstore, um, even bookshop, which is a, an online bookstore for independent bookshops. Um, if you're on Long Island, it's available in store at book review in Huntington. Um, and it is also available all the, the, the memoir and the journal and, um, are available on my website, marcybrockman.com, B-R-O-C-K-M-A-N-N, two N's. Um, and if you go to marcybrockman.com and you purchase yourself a copy of the memoir, uh, uh, searching for love, permission to land, searching for love, home and belonging. And then it, when you check out, if you type book, bun book bundle deal, B-O-O-K-B-U-N-D-L-E-D-E-A-L, -E -E then I will send you the journal and a custom bookmark for free, and I'll personally inscribe all of them for you. Um, and so that's an ongoing offer. Great. And to our listeners, where you can always find me at chuckgarcia.com. Thank you very much for tuning in, as always, on A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. We look forward to connecting with you on chuckgarcia.com or on our next podcast. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.